Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Today, South Africa, the nation of Nelson Mandela, hauled the state of Israel before The Hague to charge it with committing the crime of genocide against the Palestinian people, specifically charging it with wanton, shameless and indeed undisguised violations of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide of 1948, to which Israel and its key allies are signatories. The aim? Given it can take years for the court to adjudicate on a case of this type, to secure provisional measures which legally decree, above all else, that Israel must cease its military operations in Gaza and allow its people to receive humanitarian aid. Now, you may understandably be cynical about the prospects of such an outcome. Surely Israel would simply ignore the ICJ, as it has done before when the court has ruled against it. But if Israel is found to be committing genocide, that would then have huge implications for the states which arm and back Israel. And without their support, Israel's genocide against the Palestinians would not be possible. Now, this case, brought before the International Court of Justice, the highest court of the United Nations, has already begun with a meticulously evidenced and devastatingly argued 84-page document. Today, a team of esteemed lawyers, largely themselves South African, alongside an Irish and British colleague, delivered oral arguments covering genocidal acts, genocidal intent, jurisdiction, the rights requiring protection, urgency and irreparable harm, and the provisional measures that are sought. Now, this was a moment of history for so many reasons. South Africa is a victim of the historic crime of apartheid, and it therefore has assumed a moral responsibility that given its own people struggled at such cost and sacrifice to free themselves from their own prison, they are obliged, as they see it, to use whatever power they have to help secure the liberation of others. It also represents a moment of historic defiance on the part of the global south, against the global order which speaks loftily about the rule of law and human rights, but which in practice is rigged in favour of the United States and its key allies. It also represents the biggest ever challenge to Israel's impunity, which has allowed it to commit grave crimes and oppression for decades, and which has directly facilitated the genocidal mania which now grips the Israeli elite, and I have to say, so much of Israeli society, with the extremely courageous exceptions of Israeli peace activists. The arguments presented by each and every lawyer was devastating, overwhelming and inarguable. If the merits of the case alone decided the verdict, rather than international politics, which I'll come on to, then there would be no question at all that the ICJ would accept the case of South Africa in full. Now, I must be honest, every day since this horror began, I've been following the war crimes committed by the Israeli state very closely. I, of course, have read South Africa's written submission. I've done a video about that already. But watching this session was a profoundly shocking experience. 
Now, as far as I'm concerned, all Israel can possibly offer in response to these overwhelming arguments is whataboutery, deflection, irrelevant segues, distortion, misdirection, gaslighting, and just outright deception. The Israeli state, of course, excels in all of these. Now, I will be showing clips throughout, but let's go through some of the key points made by this team of legal and moral giants. Whoever, whatever happens, whatever happens, they can stare themselves in the mirror for the rest of their lives and say, we stepped up to the plate and we did all we could to stop one of the great crimes of our age. Now, the first was Adila Hassin, who declared that genocides are never declared in advance, but this court has the benefit of the past 13 weeks of evidence that shows incontrovertibly a pattern of conduct and related intention that justifies a plausible claim of genocidal acts. Now, she notes Israel's repeated refusal to allow in medical supplies, its conducts being deliberately calculated to cause widespread hunger, dehydration and starvation, pushing Gazans to the brink of famine. That of the world's people at risk of starvation, 80% now live in Gaza. The displacement, she notes, of around 85% of the Palestinians of Gaza with nowhere safe for them to flee to. With those who cannot leave to refuse uh, to this order to be displaced, an illegal order, I have to say, being killed or extreme risk of being killed in their own homes. The mass destruction, she notes, of homes and infrastructure frustrating any realistic prospect for the displaced to ever return home. And a really fundamental point here, which should frankly trash what will likely form the key gaslighting pillar of the Israeli state is that what they claim are humanitarian measures are actually genocidal in intent themselves. That is, the mass displacement under violent duress of over a million people at the start when the necessities of life are withheld, when vulnerable people like the infirm, children, the old, the injured are forced to leave with almost no notice. That the supposedly safe areas that ordered to flee to are also bombed, where they face permanent removal from where they live by virtue of the total destruction of their homes. All of this is genocidal in nature. And indeed, of course, this brilliant South African lawyer discusses the mass slaughter of Palestinians by violence. Hundreds of multi-generational Palestinian families wiped out. The killing, she says, is nothing short of the destruction of Palestinian life. It is inflicted deliberately, she notes. No one is spared, not even newborn babies. Let's hear her on Israel's unparalleled and unprecedented killing of Palestinians. In the first three weeks alone, following 7 October, Israel deployed 6,000 bombs per week. At least 200 times, it has deployed 2,000-pound bombs in southern areas of Palestine designated as safe. These bombs have also decimated the north, including refugee camps. 2,000-pound bombs are some of the biggest and most destructive bombs available. They are dropped by lethal fighter jets that are used to strike targets on the ground by one of the world's most resourced armies. Israel has killed an unparalleled and unprecedented number of civilians with the full knowledge of how many civilian lives 
each bomb will take. Next came Tembeka Ungukke Tobi, who had the task of establishing the overwhelming genocidal intent expressed by Israeli leaders and politicians and army officers over and over and over again. Let's listen to him. There is an extraordinary feature in this case that Israel's political leaders, military commanders, and persons holding official positions have systematically and in explicit terms declared their genocidal intent. And these statements are then repeated by soldiers on the ground in Gaza as they engage in the destruction of Palestinians and the physical infrastructure of Gaza. Prime Minister Netanyahu, in his address to the Israeli forces on 28 October 2023, preparing for the invasion of Gaza, urged the soldiers to remember what Amalek has done to you. This refers to the biblical command by God to Saul for the retaliatory destruction of an entire group of people known as the Amalekites, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. The genocidal invocation to Amalek was anything but idle. It was repeated by Mr. Netanyahu in a letter to the Israeli Armed Forces on 3 November 2023. Madam President, let the Prime Minister's words speak for themselves. Well, as he says, this is an extraordinary feature of this horror. As Raz Sigal, an Israeli-American associate professor of genocide and Holocaust studies, has told me, Israel's onslaught on Gaza is unique in the sense of discussing as what I think it is, that is genocide, because the intent is clearly articulated right through Israeli society, media, society, uh, media and politics. Normally, states committing genocide or even any horrific atrocity go to great lengths to cover up and hide their crimes. Not so here. They cannot stop saying genocidal things. They're addicted. As well as Amalek, which I note Netanyahu referred to twice, once in his address to the Israeli public, but six days later, specifically in a letter to Israeli soldiers, there was also Isaac Herzog, the Israeli president, who declared it's an entire nation out there that's responsible. It's not true. Their rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved, is absolutely not true. No demarcation there between militants and civilians. Yo Gallant, Minister of Defence, a repeat offender. 9th of October, in an unashamed commitment to collective punishment, a violation of Article 33 of the Geneva Convention, he declared Israel was imposing a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly. Now, anyone trying to suggest by human animals he means Hamas rather than civilians is a cheap liar because he was discussing measures imposed on a civilian population. Now, on witnessing... Israeli soldiers gleefully destroying civilian infrastructure and TikTok, perhaps the first army on earth to turn war crimes into online fodder for public amusement, some have speculated that there has been a breakdown in Israeli army discipline. More likely is that soldiers listened when Golant, the defence minister, informed troops that he had released all the restraints and moved every restriction on Israeli forces. Another minister declared... All the civilian population in Gaza is ordered to leave immediately. We will win. They will not receive a drop of water or a single battery until they leave the world. Yet another suggested nuking Gaza declared there is no such thing as uninvolved civilians and opposed humanitarian aid on the grounds we wouldn't hand the Nazis humanitarian aid. Army officers, a willing participant in a video addressed the Gaza's residents, 
One major general castigated citizens of Gaza for celebrating Hamas's extremism, promising human animals are dealt with accordingly. Israel has imposed a total blockade in Gaza. No electricity, no water, just damage. You wanted hell, you'll get hell. Another celebrated general, an advisor to Defence Minister, Giora Island, demanded other countries were prevented from offering assistance to Gaza, demanding Gaza's people were left with two choices, to stay and to starve or to leave, advocating Gaza be made a place that is temporarily or permanently impossible to live in, declaring women in Gaza were not innocent because they are all the mothers, sisters or wives of Hamas murderers, and advocating, this isn't a joke, this is just where we're at, this is what these people are talking about and like, advocating a humanitarian disaster and severe epidemics to achieve war aims. The finance minister tweeted that article, and said he agreed with every word. Yet another army colonel who declared that any civilian who returned will find scorched earth, no houses, no agriculture, no nothing. They have no future. Now, I could go on, but in theory, Tenbecker had the easiest job because I do not believe there's any precedent for this orgy of genocidal incitement. But he not only made the case with aplomb, he made two of the most important points of the day. Now, what he makes clear is that Israel is going to have to claim we didn't really mean it when discussing these multiple, objectively genocidal statements. I mean, that's where we're at. How can anyone listen to those statements and say they're not genocidal? I mean, that's the point, isn't it? They are genocidal. So you, you have to then argue that they're not really meant to be genocidal, that they don't mean what they say. Well, they were all made completely independently, were they not, by people who run the country and indeed the army who are unleashing this onslaught. So we're, we're trying to argue that soldiers weren't meant to believe the meaning of the words that these people chose to use. As Tembeka says, These statements are not open to neutral interpretations or after-the-fact rationalizations and reinterpretations by Israel. The statements were made by persons in command of the state. They communicated state policy. It is simple. If the statements were not intended, they would not have been made. The genocidal intent behind these statements is not ambiguous to the Israeli soldiers on the ground. Now, that final point by Tembeke is the other crucial point here, because what he's doing is linking what Israeli political and army leaders have said to the behavior of Israeli forces. So as an example, they show a video of Israeli troops dancing and chanting, there are no uninvolved citizens. That is the language used by top Israeli politicians and shows soldiers are listening to the message communicated to them from the top and acting on it. Indeed, there's all those clips of Israeli soldiers gleefully destroying entire neighbourhoods, wiping out infrastructure, because they know they have the licence to do so. Why? Because of the genocidal intent expressed at the very top. So the argument, again, is somehow these genocidal statements were not meant, as Tenbecker says. If they were not intended, they would not have been said. And also the claim that soldiers would have understood somehow that they were not meant either. There's no basis for believing that. As Tenbecker notes, Intent to destroy Gaza has been nurtured at the highest levels of state. As President Isaac Herzog has joined the ranks of those signing bombs destined for Gaza. Now, John Dugard then set out the arguments in jurisdiction, noting the 1948 convention is dedicated to saving humanity, noting all countries signed up to the convention are obliged not only to desist from genocidal acts, but also to prevent them, basically making the argument of why and one country can interfere in another country's affairs if they're committing genocide. Max Duplessis then placed the current horrors in a historical context, arguing against seeing the current horror as a simple conflict between two parties, where Israel subjected the Palestinian people to an oppressive and prolonged violation of their rights to self-determination for more than half a century. Those violations occur in a world 
where Israel has for years regarded itself as beyond and above the law. Now, this is an important element of South Africa's case, because when the Jewish Polish lawyer, Raphael Lemkin, coined genocide in his 1944 book, Axis Rule and Occupied Europe, he intended the word genocide to be understood as a continuum, not as an isolated event. So having that historic oppression of the Palestinians is a backdrop, it is critical. The clock did not start on the 7th of October. Now, he added Palestinians in Gaza as a very substantial, important part of the Palestinian national racial ethnic group simply but profoundly have a right to exist. Next came the Irish lawyer, Blinini Gourley. Now, a confession. I've been stealing myself to return to her testimony when I was putting this video together. It was one of the most extraordinary performances of any description that I've witnessed in my life. I confess that I wept as she spoke, and when she finished speaking, I wept some more. This session will be remembered throughout the ages, and this testimony, certainly so. And if I may say so, generations, no, centuries of Irish suffering under British colonial rule spoke through this pretty extraordinary woman. Let's hear her searing denunciation of the so-called international community's abandonment of the Palestinian people. International community continues to fail the Palestinian people despite the overt, dehumanising, genocidal rhetoric by Israeli governmental and military officials matched by the Israeli army's actions on the ground. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Despite the horror of the genocide against the Palestinian people being live streamed from Gaza to our mobile phones, computers and television screens, the first genocide in history where its victims are broadcasting their own destruction in real time in the desperate, so far vain hope that the world might do something. And she rightly pointed the finger, again. As stated by a United Nations spokesperson in Gaza last week, at the site of a hospital clearly marked with the symbol of the Red Crescent, where five Palestinians, including a five-day-old baby, had just been killed. The world should be absolutely horrified. 
the world should be absolutely outraged. There is no safe space in Gaza and the world should be ashamed. She spoke of that now widely used acronym in Gaza, WCNSF, Wounded Child, No Surviving Family. Let's hear her now on the mass destruction of Gaza. Court has heard of the horrific death toll and of the more than 7,000 Palestinian men, women and children reported missing, presumed dead or dying slow, excruciating deaths trapped under the rubble. Reports of field executions and torture and ill-treatment are mounting, as are images of decomposing bodies of Palestinian men, women and children left unburied where they were killed, some being picked upon by animals. It is becoming ever clearer that huge swathes of Gaza, entire towns, villages, refugee camps, are being wiped from the map. As you have heard, but it bears repeating, According to the World Food Programme, four out of five people in the world in famine or a catastrophic type of hunger are in Gaza right now. Indeed, experts warn that deaths from starvation and disease risk significantly outstripping deaths from bombings. And now listen to what fate will befall the Palestinian people without urgent intervention every day that there isn't that urgent intervention. They include 48 mothers each day, two every hour, and over 117 children each day, leading UNICEF to call Israel's actions a war on children. On current rates which show no sign of abating, each day, over three medics, two teachers, more than one United Nations employee, and more than one journalist will be killed, many while at work or in what appear to be targeted attacks on their family homes or where they are sheltering. The risk of famine will increase each day. Each day, an average of 629 people will be wounded, some multiple times over, as they move from place to place, desperately seeking sanctuary. Each day, over 10 Palestinian children will have one or both legs amputated, many without anaesthetic. Each day, on current rates, an average of 3,900 Palestinian homes will be damaged or destroyed. More mass graves will be dug. More cemeteries will be bulldozed and bombed and corpses violently exhumed, denying even the dead any dignity or peace. Each day, ambulances, hospitals and medics will continue to be attacked and killed. The first responders who have spent three months without international assistance, trying to dig families out of the rubble with their bare hands, will continue to be targeted. On current figures, one will be killed almost every second day, sometimes in attacks launched against those attending the scene to rescue the wounded. Each day, yet more desperate people will be forced to relocate from where they are sheltering or will be bombed in places where they have been told to evacuate to. Entire multi-generational families will be obliterated. And then there was this, this, which I confess completely broke me. I share with you two photographs. The first is of a whiteboard at a hospital in northern Gaza 
one of the many Palestinian hospitals targeted, besieged, and bombed by Israel over the course of the past three brutal months. The whiteboard is wiped clean of no longer possible surgical cases, leaving only a handwritten message by a Médecins Sans Frontières doctor which reads, We did what we could. Remember us. The second photograph is of the same whiteboard after an Israeli strike on the hospital on the 21st of November that killed the author of the message, Dr. Mahmoud Abu Nujela, along with two of his colleagues. You hear this, and you wonder, don't you? How can the whole world not just be screaming for this to stop? How is it not driving everyone to the point of madness, knowing the full extent of the horrors being unleashed against humans who for now are living and breathing, but with every passing day, no longer are? who are living through hell and then dying through hell. Finally, Vaughan Lowe went through the provisional measures being sought by South Africa. He destroyed the claims of Israel to be minimising civilian casualties. Let's have a listen. It's no use Israel saying that it does whatever it can to minimise the deaths of innocent men, women and children. The use of 2,000-pound bunker-busting bombs and dumb bombs in residential areas and the relentless bombardment of Gaza and even of so-called safe areas to which Palestinians have been directed by Israel tell another story. But that is not the only point. It's not just a question of scale and of indiscriminate killing. It's also a question of intention. If any military operation, no matter how carefully it's carried out, is carried out pursuant to an intention to destroy a people in whole or in part, it violates the, gen the Genocide Convention, and it must stop. And that is why all military operations capable of violating the Genocide Convention must cease. Key point. It's not just indiscriminate, it's intent. That's what places it in violation of the Geneva Convention. Indiscriminate, failing to protect civilian life, that can be a crime in of itself. Intent is what makes what is already a crime into genocide. And that's why the court must order Israel to cease its military operations and allow humanitarian aid. That's the logical conclusion of South Africa's case. Uh, Vaughan also destroyed the what about tree, the what about Hamas argument. He explains for a start, Hamas isn't a state, can't be a party to the Genocide Convention, can't be a party to these proceedings. The correct route to pursue Hamas for its crimes, accordingly, is the International Criminal Court, which can and has pursued state actors. And indeed, all who commit war crimes should be pursued for what they have done. Now, the arguments offered by South Africa are utterly devastating. As they note, the very reputation of international law, the ability to bind and protect all peoples equally, as they put it, hangs in the balance. You see, it's long been clear that international law is something that the US in particular picks and chooses from as it sees fit, like some sort of bizarre delicatessen. And it offers that exceptionalism to its allies like Israel. Now, Israel will undoubtedly point to the atrocities committed by Hamas and other armed groups on the 7th of October. And again, to be clear, those war crimes did take place. They're indefensible. It's inarguable, and that shouldn't be denied. But the point about South Africa's case is, as they say, there is never, ever, ever any justification for genocide. What another, in this case, armed group, or number of armed groups, did to you 
does not justify you then committing genocide against the civilian population. Those atrocities should be condemned in their own terms, and frankly, those responsible should be, as I say, facing justice, but they are completely and utterly irrelevant to this case. That is about whether Israel is committing genocide or not. It's a really important point. You can put on as many of these atrocities as you like, and people should be appalled by them, but they are not relevant to whether you have the right to commit genocide. You do not. Now, the case has clearly overwhelmingly linked the genocidal statements, that is, intent of Israeli political and military leaders to the genocidal behaviour, conduct of Israeli forces. The precedent has clearly been established of one state taking another state to court on this issue. That is Gambia taking Myanmar to court over the genocide of the Rohingya. And the argument made here is that Palestinians are no less deserving of protection. And the point about irreparable damage was devastatingly established. That is, without provisional measures, Gaza will become permanently uninhabitable. A place of mass death. Now note this. This was a session of monumental historic interest. In, say, Britain, where I'm from, it should be an event of huge newsworthiness. That is, is our government complicit in a genocide? And yet neither the BBC nor Sky News saw fit to livestream it. It received no prominent coverage on the web pages of multiple British news outlets. I have a Twitter list of UK political journalists, which shows the output on social media. I scroll through it. Practically no mention of this whatsoever. Now, my fury here, I confess it is fury, is not focused on those who are still cheering this obscenity on. They are, as far as I'm concerned, morally depraved, but beyond any redemption at this point. It's those who choose to say either nothing or the occasional bit of platitudinous hand-wringing, thinking that will be sufficient to deflect criticism or indeed wash away the shame that they do not care about one of the great crimes of our age. They have my eternal contempt and they deserve yours. They're complicit in this crime because they're playing a pivotal role in reducing public pressure on the governments which arm and back Israel and thus facilitate the current horror. Now, part of me is tempted to resort to COD psychology and ask, are you broken? Who hurt you? How are you witnessing these scenes? Even if you're seeking to avoid the evidence that piles up day after day after day, it's all over Twitter, you just need to open the app, you know what's happening. How are you not responding by screaming about this horror and doing everything you can to make it stop? But, alas, you don't need a psychological explanation. It is, as it turns out, far more mundane. It's racism. It's straightforward racism. That is where you see the lives of some as having less worth because of their ethnicity. And thus you choose to say almost nothing when they suffer mass murder. Now, as for what happens next, there are 15 judges on the ICJ. And it's believed that six are likely to side with the Palestinian people and six with the Israeli state, with the other three to be won over. But alas, these judges are appointed by governments. And their decisions are profoundly open to being influenced by real politique and international manoeuvring than justice. But you know what? Whatever happens, I don't, I don't know. But whatever happens, I think something has changed. Israel has now been exposed in a way it's never been. Whatever ill-deserved moral authority it claimed is gone. Public opinion in the Western states, which props up its horrors, is now decisively turning against it. You can see it particularly in the polling of younger people, who will come of age. New generations are becoming politicised not just about the crimes of the present, but also the crimes of Israel's past. Now, you can 
here, the Israeli state desperately is flapping around. One official Israeli spokesperson declared, South Africa is the legal arm of the Hamas terrorist organization. Is that the best you've got? Who are you trying to convince here? You sound deranged. Nobody but your most extreme delusional outriders will believe this libel. You, you're a glorified internet troll of a state at this rate. What is the point? Why waste everyone's time? As one Palestinian activist told me though, and we should look at hope. Looking for hope amidst the current darkness, it seems like a challenge. But let me just quote what he told me. In all honesty, my main feeling today is relief and a renewed flick of true hope. The dignity and eloquence of the South African legal team, as well as the historical symbolism, will resonate for decades to come. Relief, because the taboo has been utterly shattered. Israel cannot pop the cat back in the bag regarding its genocide. But he's right, isn't he? The Israeli state stands naked. Its Western backers stand naked, and so I'm afraid does most of the Western media, which increasingly has been treated with contempt. They are increasingly seen for who they are. And I doubt they will ever recover from this moment, even if they don't quite realise it yet. In truth, whatever the verdict, no people will ever be liberated by a court. The Palestinian road to freedom remains long, hard and brutal. But justice does seem a bit closer than it was. And thanks to the solidarity of a South African people which knows all too well the bitter taste of subjugation, the prospect of a decades-long nightmare one day coming to an end somehow seems a little more tangible. What a great legacy for those who already toppled one apartheid state. As for those who cheered on this historic crime, in my view, they should be forced to listen in full to these testimonies. How they will ever scrub away the shame, that's beyond me. I'll cover the Israeli case, lucky me, and many interviews to come, particularly, of course, the Palestinian voices we need to hear. But also got an interview with a self-declared anti-Zionist Jew, Miko Pellet, who is the son of, well, from a family of, I suppose, Israeli national heroes. He's been, he's been on quite a journey. Um, do share this video. Please like and subscribe. You can keep the show on the road at patreon.com forward slash for Listen to us the podcast. Speak to you soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.